Hi, and welcome to Career Burnout, a different kind of gap year podcast. You're with the founder and creator, Shan Swans. Most of us take a gap year in our late teens or early 20s. Not me, I started mine at age 41. For 20 years, I was either working towards or working as a clinical psychologist. One day earlier this year, I had a complete emotional, mental and physical breakdown. I was completely exhausted and unable to return to work. Looking back, I can see my health was on a decline and that it was gradually building and culminating in that fateful day early this year. I know now that what I was suffering from, and in some ways still am, was a combination of career burnout, compassion fatigue, and vicarious trauma syndromes. To assist with improving and healing from this, I started to write a blog. I often refer to it as my journal. In this journal, I write candidly about my journey from the very beginning to where I am now. I've written blogs on the guilt and shame that I carried for ages for letting down my clients, the practice I worked at, and my husband. I write about the difficulty allowing myself to truly rest and recover. I've written about the dealing with the uncertainty that surrounds my future. And recently, I wrote about questioning my uh, career choice as a psychologist and whether I will continue. As I started to speak up about my experience, an interesting thing started to occur. Others started to share their career burnout experiences with me. And I found this extremely helpful to hear. It made me feel normal, made me feel validated with what I was going through. So with this in mind, I knew it would be great to have a podcast where I interview individuals like myself about their career burnout experiences so others like myself who are listening to it can feel heard, normalised and validated. So a different kind of gap year podcast was born. With the purpose to raise awareness and break stigma associated with taking care of our health as, as professionals particularly those who face continuous trauma and losses experienced by those they serve. So, you know, our teachers, our psychologists, our doctors, our social workers, our counsellors, our lawyers, our uh, policemen and women, uh, just to name a few. And in addition to this, I I was hoping that this would be a springboard for change in our community attitudes and the attitudes of those workers towards getting help. I often think what can be more important than ensuring our our caring, helping professionals are well enough. It's like what they say in that plane safety briefing before you take off. You need to put the mask on yourself first before you can assist others. Thank you for tuning into this month's episode of Career Burnout, A Different Kind of Gap Year. This month, we have the courageous Sarah joining us. Sarah, like myself, is on her own gap year from her career of choice to support her mental health. 
I know Sarah is equally looking forward to bringing her story to you today as I am because she hopes that it will help others in her profession to start looking after their mental health too. Hi Sarah and welcome to the show. Thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome Sarah. So let's dive right into things. I was just wondering if you can first tell us a little bit about your career working as a lawyer. Yeah, definitely. Um, My career probably started even earlier than uh, as a lawyer. I worked as a paralegal, uh, which is what a lot of um, people in the legal industry, how they kind of start their career off. So while I was studying, I worked as a paralegal probably for maybe about four years or so. Um, and in my penultimate year of uni, I went through the clerkship application, which if you want to do commercial law in Australia, most people go down that route because it's the easiest way of kind of securing a job. So that involves a six-month kind of interview application recruitment process. And then you do a clerkship where you work three months full-time over a summer um, or the whatever the law firm is, and then you finish your – so then they decide whether or not they want to offer you a grad job. You finish your last year at uni and then you go and start as a graduate lawyer for that law firm. So that's kind of the path that I went down. And then once I started as a graduate lawyer, I spent two years doing my graduate program where every five to six months you change areas of law and that's all done before you specialise. So I kind of spent six months, you know, I did commercial litigation, I did intellectual property and competition, did mergers and acquisitions, which is buying and selling companies, and then my last rotation was in employment law, which is where I then specialised. So I was working in a law firm for a few years and then I went in-house and worked there for a little while. So all up, I was a paralegal for about, I would say, four and a half years and then a lawyer for about the same, so four and a half to five-year mark. Uh, Sarah, that just sounds like such an intense process. (laughs) (laughs) When you you add in the study, really is so my when I first started studying you couldn't do law on its own I think that might be different now but so I did my degree with a Bachelor of Arts so that was five and a half years of full-time study as well so you kind of you add in the studying the clerkship the paralegal and then as a lawyer in this you know I think I started studying in 2010 and I stopped practicing as a lawyer this year so it's kind of been a decade-long journey. Wow. Sarah I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about just like a day-to-day experience working as a lawyer. Um, It is it's it's so varied Um, definitely it depends on the type of law that you're doing it depends on if you're at a law firm or if you're working in-house. So for me um, working as an employment lawyer, uh, it depends a lot actually if you're doing kind of disputes or if you're doing more t- transactional work. I ended up doing a lot of dispute work, which means a day-to-day might look like I'm in court all day or um, you know, I'm doing advocacy in a various tribunal or court. It might involve meeting with witnesses and kind of drafting witness statements, drafting court submissions, 
It could be, you know, when I was working in-house, it might be um, kind of, you know, presenting. I used to train. uh, I worked in-house as a lawyer for a union, so I used to conduct workplace training on um, kind of industrial law for our union delegates so they kind of knew a bit more about their rights and entitlements. Um, I did a lot of unfair dismissals, which meant you have a lot of um, meeting with people especially when they first lost their job um, and kind of managing their expectations, explaining what the process is. Um, it, yeah, it's so varied. I think probably consistently across you know, all of the different areas and both in a law firm and in-house, I would say the most consistent day-to-day kind of aspects is a lot of pressure, um, internalised pressure, I think, uh, in a law firm, there is definitely external pressure as well, but um, at least in-house for me, there wasn't pressure from, you know, my bosses or the organisation that I worked for, but I had already internalised it a lot by that stage. Um, so I'd say, yeah, high pressure, high stress. Um, oh, sorry, that's, that's okay. In the background. <laughs> um, yeah, high pressure, high stress and uh, deadlines, I guess, um, sometimes very, very tight turnaround times where um, I remember <laughs> once like we, you know, being receiving, um, you know, proceed like a, a filing application at 10 or 11 p.m. for court and a.m. the next day. So you're kind of like, and it's not always that bad, but that's kind of turning around in like 12 hours. Wow. When you say, when you say in-house, just to clarify. Yeah, so you're. So in a law firm, you are, you know, it's an organisation of lawyers and you are acting for clients that are external to your organisation. So as an in-house lawyer, you work for a particular company or not-for-profit or a union. So when I started, I was, yeah, the only lawyer for my organisation, which was, um, yeah, that that was an interesting yeah, I was. Thank you for sharing a bit more about that experience of being the only lawyer there, so isolated. It was, it was really interesting in the sense I think transitioning from a law firm where you've got you know quite you can have quite massive teams, but depending what area that you're in, and you can be removed from a lot of responsibility to working in an organisation where you're the only lawyer. Everything starts and stops with you. So I lost a lot of sleep, um, you know, late at night where I'd kind of wake up and think, oh, my goodness, like I'd forgotten this or I need to do this. And, you know, when it's people's kind of jobs and their livelihoods at stake, it really kind of contributed, created even more internalised pressure. I, I think for me the, the – I think starting my career in corporate law where there is a lot of external pressure exacerbated my perfectionistic traits and the internal pressure that I put on myself such that when I have left and worked in other organisations, I can't really leave that behind. And I think that has contributed massively to my burnout because organization that I was working for there was there was never any pressure on not once when I was there did anyone ever ask me to work overtime but I ended up working so much that people would joke that I must have a bed in my office because 
just this expectation on myself that you need to do the best that you possibly can um, and that means, you know, doing it perfectly, thinking of everything, making sure that there's no stone left unturned. And, like, you, you highlight something really important, that pressure can come from within side us and that perfectionist self that some of us have. <laughs> uh, but it can also come from external as well or, or often a mixture of both. But for you, that last position that you worked in, it was internal. Yeah, and I, I think for me that has been, I think, instrumental in my learning and my kind of healing, I guess, going forwards is that knowing that a lot of, you know, how I've ended up feeling has been completely internal for me. Um, I think, yeah, that's just been a huge learning lesson for me and a really valuable one. Um, when did you know something was up that you weren't doing okay when you were working as as a lawyer there in your last um, uh, place of employment? Yeah, I I think if I look back over the last probably even couple of years, there was a lot of warning signs potentially that I missed, um, you know, being that I felt, you know, really tired all the time. I wasn't sleeping properly. You know, I would have periods of being incredibly emotional. Uh, and I attributed all of that to lack of sleep. Um, you know, being when you're working in, in a job where you're working quite big hours, obviously your sleep falters. And I always kind of thought, well, if I just sleep more, you know, things will get better. Um, but then I started noticing probably towards the end of last year, so the end of 2020, I just felt extremely exhausted all the time. So it kind of went from, you know, coming home and just feeling, you know, I just want to veg on the couch and watch TV because I've had a long day to like, I can't get off this couch. Um, I'm, I just have absolutely no energy. And then that I just kept kind of pushing through and pushing through because there was always more work to be done. There was always something else that needed to happen. And that by the time I got home, it just, it kind of got worse and worse to the point that when I got home and on weekends, it, it kind of bled from during the week to the weekends that I couldn't get out of bed and I couldn't get off the couch and I would come home and my partner would have to do everything, you know, he would have to cook, he would have to wash up. And when it got to the weekend, I just had no energy for anything. I kind of lost that zest for, and I've, I've always been such a get up and go person. I've always been, you know, my weekends are brunch with a girlfriend and then I'll go for a walk and then I'll have lunch with someone else. And then, you know, I'll go out for dinner and drinks with more friends and you know, my family and friends have always kind of been the ones saying, you know, slow down, you're always on the go. And so for me to then transition into this period where I couldn't do anything, I had no energy for anything, it then really started affecting my mood and I really started becoming quite low. Um, and I, over the Christmas break, I thought, you know, I'm going to take some time off. I'm going to, you know, rest up. Um, I'm probably just, you know, I'm, I am, but I, I recognize that I was burnt out, but I think I thought it was nothing that a few weeks off at Christmas couldn't fix. Um, so I had three weeks off over Christmas in 2020 
And I didn't get out of bed for the first two weeks. I just, it was like my body just could not sleep enough and I just still had no energy. And I even went away um, with some friends and, you know, I thought being around people and in that different environment, you know, I'd have energy. I just, you know, I, I still don't think I was realizing the severity of what my body was kind of saying to me what I was going through. And even on this holiday, we'd do anything and I would just want to lie in bed. Um, and so that was, I think, when I kind of started realising that maybe this was a little bit more serious than I was realising. Uh, and so I, you know, I had a, a meeting or an appointment with my GP uh, because I still at this at this stage I thought something must be wrong you know maybe it's my thyroid maybe it's I don't know an iron deficiency you know maybe I've got glandular fever so yeah so my kind of I, I'd gone back to work at that stage but you know like most people kind of know January is a, a is a quiet time for most organizations so it was like the first time in a long time that I was I was actually just working my you know employed hours um so I, you know, had an appointment with the GP. We ran some um, at my blood test. Nothing came up. We the next point of call because um, I have always had troubles with sleeping, and I've you know suffered and battled with insomnia for a number of years. So he referred me to a sleep specialist. So I did an overnight sleep study to make sure that it wasn't you know sleep apnea or anything else, and that was all fine. Um, and, you know, at the same time, cause my doctor kind of said, look, it's probably either physical or it's psychological. Um, and so at the same time I was kind of seeing a GP, I was also trying to have kind of regular sessions with a psychologist to work through it. Um, and so after my Christmas break, while this was all kind of happening, that feeling just still wasn't going away and, none of the tests kind of brought anything up. And I thought, you know, maybe I just need more time. Maybe it's just, you know, three weeks over Christmas just wasn't enough. And so I went and chatted to my bosses at the time um, and kind of told them what was going on. uh, And they were really great about it. So I had, I think, another two weeks of leave. Um, And again, just nothing changed in that time. It was still, I couldn't really get out of bed. I was just extremely tired. Uh, And that was when I kind of went, you know, I think it's a broader issue than just I've worked a bit too hard. Like I think my body really needs a lot more rest. Um, I hadn't been enjoying doing legal work for a long time. And so it was kind of always this upwards battle of like, coming to work in this like high pressure, high volume of work for something that I don't enjoy for a really long time. So I thought, you know what, I'm just going to take a break. Um, I'm just going to have, you know, three to six months off and then I'm going to, you know, see how I feel and revisit things. Um, And so I resigned um, from my job as a lawyer three days later I got another job. <laughs> it, was like, it was a great job that I'd really wanted. It was outside of the law. And I, so I thought, no, do you know what? This is kind of my dream job. I can't turn this opportunity down. I'm going to take it. I had a, I think I had maybe three weeks or something off between jobs. 
And then I went into another job um, and the feeling has gotten better, but it didn't go away. So then I've ultimately decided that I was going to have full six months off. So I, I left that job and I'm currently in that kind of long stretch of having time off. Jeez, I, I feel Sarah just need to take a pause and, and take all that journey you've been on up until now in. <laughs> it's just huge like like you said you didn't necessarily notice the warning signs at the beginning but looking back you know that you could see where it was sort of starting from first being really fatigued it sounds like and it wasn't recovering even with time off you were still very tired and 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 not being able to to do the things you normally would do and that others know about you, you know, that social get up and go person, that Sarah, and and even losing that passion for your work as well that you, you know, you did have in the beginning. Um, but I love your intuition that you had enough to go off and see a doctor, you know, that you went and investigated because you're like this is, even though you're someone who's suffered from sleep difficulties, insomnia for some time, you're like, there's there's something going on here that needs investigation. Um, and I love um, that your doctor even, you know, considered that it, this could be physical, this could be psychological, could be a bit of both sometimes, and um, set that course. And, and you even yourself took up, you know, therapy as well and, um, got that professional help um, and guidance, and even the decision to take a gap, you know, to, to take that time off to resign from what you trained to do. Um, and I was actually eager to find out what, you know, it, within that, especially that process of deciding to leave and take permanent time off, just what that was like for you to come to that decision and take that step. I think. I think it was really difficult, um, but I think I got, unfortunately, had to get myself to a point where there was no other options for me. Um, You know, that kind of get up and go, Sarah, was such a huge part of my identity. It still is. And that disconnect and not being that person anymore has been such a struggle that, you know, getting up in the morning and putting my shoes on and putting my work clothes on and going to work, that being the only thing that I had capacity to do and to have the energy to force myself through to come home and like just completely collapse. For me, that wasn't a viable option. And my body was, I could just tell it, it was just telling me, stop. You just, you, something is not right. And you just, what, if you're already kind of at this point and you keep pushing, what is going to end up happening, you know? So for me, it was a really difficult decision, but I also felt like I didn't have any other choice. That, that's so important. I think what you said there that you didn't have a choice in the end. Your body was giving out and, uh, yeah, you, you had to in some ways or you not had to you had no choice um and I I feel like sometimes that's what happens with career burnout syndrome is that our body gets to a point where she can no longer do it so we don't have a choice we we can't turn up to work tomorrow you know we we need to leave yeah 
Yeah, and it was it was so difficult, I think, trying to hold space for anyone else in my life at that time as well, and that's what I really struggled with because I, you know, part of how I kind of identify is being very caring and compassionate and being there for my friends and having kind of all of my energy consumed by just showing up to work every day and coming home so depleted and exhausted I didn't have the space for my friends or my family or my partner and that was incredibly difficult and that was something that really influenced my decision as well to take time off because it almost felt like I was becoming a shell of this kind of you know vivacious kind of compassionate lovely person that I wanted to be and how I was prior to this happening yeah the costs were too high yeah you had to change something and the cost of you weren't able to um you weren't feeling connected anymore to your family and friends and that was not a cost you were willing to have anymore exactly right and I think particularly when I wasn't enjoying my work and I think it 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 kind of, it, it ran deeper than not enjoying it because I was, you know, suffering from kind of low energy and low morale. But I think for a while I'd kind of realised that law probably wasn't for me, but because it was such a long journey getting there, you know, it was five and a half years of full-time studying and four and a half years as a lawyer and four and a half years paralegal. I just kept pushing because it, I'd been doing it for so long that, I didn't want to step away and I think I've seen it with a lot like burnout is huge in the legal profession and but when you talk to people it's what else would I do I don't know what I would do next and it's you know it's that kind of cost I think is it called the cost sunk fallacy I don't know I I think that's what it's called it's where it becomes a fallacy in your mind that because you've spent so long doing something you continue doing it but you're actually losing more time by continuing to do something that you know is no longer right I like that but what you're saying is definitely something that I have witnessed uh, of others in my profession I've invested so long you know to become a psychologist it's a long road as well Um, you've invested so much and often there's not like a next, like what am I going to do, you know, if I'm not doing that? Yeah, well, that's that's exactly right. Um, it's I just I just quickly looked it up. It's the sunk cost fallacy. I got my words around the wrong way. Um, yeah, but and so I I knew that law wasn't right for me, and I kept going. Um, and I think that was a huge part of what did end up helping me to make this career, you know, break or whatever. Is that I knew I didn't want to be a lawyer and so it was like this thing that I knew I didn't want to do was actually consuming all of my life. It was the only thing that I had time and space for um, and it was burning my body to the ground but I kept doing it <laughs> and it's I think saying it now in hindsight it kind of sounds almost ridiculous but at the time it was so hard to step away. To step away and not know what you're going to step into I think is scary I mean what was it like for you to not know what's next um I think it's funny because when I resigned it was actually one of my bosses that said that he goes what how are you even doing like you don't have a plan I'm like I know because you know I'm such 
And we used to muck around like I'm, I'm just such an A-type personality, you know, I've got my lists and I've got you come into my office and we'd have like a colour-coded whiteboard with, you know, everything on it. And it's so for me not having a plan and not being in control of you know, what I was doing was really difficult. But in a weird kind of way it was really liberating because I think not having that time and space of knowing what's next has it really forced me to kind of go inwards and really reflect on how I feel. And I think particularly in a profession like being a lawyer, I was so forced to rely on logic and reasoning for everything that I was doing for a long time. I completely fell out of touch and became completely disconnected with my intuition and feeling. And so I think you know, just kind of saying that now, that's probably part of the reason why I like missed those warning signs is because I didn't, I wasn't taking any time to actually feel into my body. And I was constantly trying to think rationally and logically each day. Yes. Yes. I mean, often we haven't got the space to really tune in and and, um, listen to that intuitive self and sometimes our own uh, career that we do or, or life, other life experiences, we rely more on other skills like logic and rational um, thinking when what we need to do is, you know, to, to sit and listen and tune in. But that having that complete break from the career has and, and having nothing to go or no sort of uh, work step from there forced you to listen to that and connect back to her Mm. and I think it's that logic and rationalization that was kind of pushing me from who who was Sarah when she started her legal journey you know I want to be a lawyer then I want to be an associate then I want to be a senior associate then I want to be a partner and these are the steps that you need to take to do those things and you know even you know when I transitioned into an in-house lawyer it's kind of still that next step logic, but by not actually stopping and spending time reflecting and actually feeling into my body, I wasn't able to actually connect with Sarah as she is now and what does Sarah want. And when I show up to work each day and I'm putting on my logic shoes, I'm not putting on my how do I feel shoes and enjoying the work that I'm doing is this giving me energy or is this taking energy away from me you know Mm. I come home do I feel invigorated by my work or do I feel drained and because Mm. I was focusing on logic all the time I wasn't actually reflecting on who I was as a person now and what I wanted Mm. and I was just proceeding down this plan that I'd planned for myself Mm. you know a decade Mm. ago (laughs) Mm. it's almost like future Sarah was in the driver's seat, what does Sarah want? Whereas you have learnt to uh, check in on the human Sarah right now in this moment, how is she doing? Yeah. Um, and what does she need right now? How is she responding to work today? Or Yeah, ex- yeah that's exactly right. And I think I've, especially as someone that's a planner, I've really now, stopped myself from making five-year plans because what I think I've now seen time and time again is that future me feels completely differently about things by the time I get there and so it's better for me 
not to actually make plans and to just constantly check in with myself as I go along and see how I feel. And had I been doing that all along, I think I would have realised a lot earlier that this profession that I was in, the work that I was in, this internalised pressure cooker that I had made for myself, I, th- I think I would have realised earlier that something was amiss and it wouldn't have taken this complete exhaustion and fatigue and not being able to get out of bed for me to kind of wake up and go, something's wrong, like something really, really bad is wrong. Yeah. But now, like, it sounds like that's one of the things that are really helping you now that you've learnt within this experience, the importance of being more present with yourself and checking in, going in and how am I feeling, how am I going in relation to what's happening in your environment, or, or, you know, whether that be work or other related and making choices based on that. Is that what I'm hearing that's helping you? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think even in that, the time that I've currently had off and, you know, from that experience, it definitely has taught me to do that. And I think, I used to associate, you know, feelings and emotions as this kind of negative or pejorative kind of term and, you know, like being logical and like reasonable was kind of the thing to strive for. Um, And I think kind of realising, though, that being understanding your emotions and being aware of how you feel is completely different from, you know, being emotional in a sense of lashing out at people or, you know, being irritable and things like that. And so learning to sit in my feelings now and my emotions, I've been able to be more self-aware and aware around others. And it's actually empowered me to, you know, end friendships that weren't making me feel good anymore. And, you know, when I have job job opportunities come up or, you know, working in an environment and I go, do you know what? This actually isn't for me and that's okay. But I don't, yeah, I think you're right. I don't think I would have realized that unless I hadn't had this experience to teach me to switch from, you know, logic and reason to actually sitting in and feeling. Yeah. I was wondering what else have you gained from this experience? Like things that, or or maybe it was even earlier on, things that have helped support you. Um, I think, I mean, obviously at the time having a partner that was able to pick up, I don't want to say pick up the slack, but do things for me that I couldn't do for myself was was huge, you know. Um, you know, he kind of no questions asked was doing all of the cooking and the washing up and kind of doing all of the life admin kind of stuff that I didn't have the energy or the space for. But I think the biggest, most important thing that really helped me was having Um, a financial situation that lent itself to me having time off. And so um, it's kind of what I call and a lot of people, other people call an emergency fund. But I had previously kind of had three months of kind of living expenses put aside. Um, And then as I was kind of feeling some of these feelings coming up and kind of knowing that maybe I might need to end up having some time off, I really focused my savings on doubling that. So I had saved and put aside six months of living expenses so that if and when the time came, I knew that I could actually step away from that situation and financially I wouldn't take a hit. Um, if I didn't have that, well, I, I just wouldn't have been able to take time off. I think, you know, people often live paycheck to paycheck, which means 
something like this happens, you actually just can't afford to have that time off. And that then becomes exacerbated if you have kids or you have dependents or there's people relying to make income. No, definitely. So it's something that made, um, I often use the phrase, a safe place to fall. So when we fall, so something that was part of your safety net or a big part is having that financial security that you made steps, purposeful steps to achieve. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think absolutely. And I think as well, having a good network of people. And I mean that in the sense of, you know, yeah, emotionally supportive friends and family, but I mean also a professional network that I know if, you know, push really came to shove and, you know, my circumstances changed or I just really, you know, desperately needed to get a job, knowing that I probably, even if it wasn't in an, in an ideal world, like my kind of ideal job, that I would be able to pick some other kind of work up if I have to. I think that also made it what was that analogy you used I really like that a safer place and I think also really important importantly I was really selective with who I told before I'd done it because I I think having you know six months off particularly when you're kind of older you know whether it's three or six or 12 months off leaving a job without another job lined up it's not something that everyone will take to and people will have opinions and, you know, people's financial circumstances are also, you know, very different to yours. And so for me, I was, I don't think I really told anyone. <laughs> I'm just, I'm like, I'm thinking now, I'm like, who did I actually tell before I did it? Um, I think I told, you know, obviously my partner, cause that affects him too. And I think I told like one of my best mates and that was pretty much it until I'd actually already kind of resigned on the dotted line and then I kind of like slowly let people in as like this is what I've done and why I've done it as opposed to you know people trying to weigh in on whether or not you should do something I just didn't want that I knew at that point what was me and I didn't want someone else weighing in yeah like it's almost like I, I, I hear you with you Sarah you had your back a lot of the times like okay there might have been things that you the warning signs like earlier on, but you didn't have the skills at the time, but you, you have them now that, you know, you'll pick up on things earlier in, you know, now and in the future. But but there was always a part of you there that had your back even there as you were describing choosing who you told and when. Mm-hmm. And it's I think one of, um, one of the people that I actually worked with um, in that job said something to me that really stuck with me. I know it wasn't around me resigning. It was around something else, but I, I actually, I said to him, I said, you're one of the very few people in my life that don't offer me unsolicited advice. And he goes, but why would I, I know that you have all the tools and you know, what's best for you. Who am I to tell you that? And it's, and I just thought, oh my goodness, if only more, more people could kind of think like that, but it was just, and it also like conversations like that kind of you know, that resonate with you afterwards, I kind of thought, you know what, you're right. Like I I know more than anyone else in my life what is what's right for me and what is the best next step. And I think unfortunately sometimes I do, I know that I can go external or I used to anyway go external before I'd go internal. And because I value so much, you know, the people I care about, what they think, if I go external before I go internal, what they think will influence me and what I do and what my next steps are. 
And so there have been these kind of critical points of my life where when I internally have come to a decision, that decision has to get made before I go external. It's just like really beautiful. Uh, like that before I go external, go internal. And I think it's, you know, particularly when we're talking about professions that society and the people around you really attach your identity to, you know, like one of the first questions that we ask people is what do you do? You know, what do you do for a living? And, you know, people perceive being a lawyer in a certain kind of light. And so you hearing you kind of say, well, yeah, after a decade, I'm going to turn away and I'm going to leave that with nothing else like that. Very few people aren't going to have some kind of emotional reaction to that. And I just wanted to avoid that. And I think, yeah, that's something that I've definitely is, it's still a learning curve for me to go internal before I go external. Um, but it's something that's yet yeah, definitely really helped me. Mm. And what, what have uh, been the reactions, particularly from people in your field? Yeah, I, it's interesting. Um, I don't know that they necessarily understand. I think there's a lot of, oh, I wish I could do that. Oh, but I can't. Reactions. Um, I mean, I still, I mean, over time and space, I'm, you know, no longer like just by virtue of, I guess, you know, not the same organisation anymore. I don't have as many friends that are lawyers as I used to. But the ones that I have, I mean, my friends are always understanding in the sense that they want what's best for me. But I think what I realised and part of the reason that I put off having those conversations until it was done is that every time I tell someone I have to go into a re- like an explanation and a reasoning and it's like they get it once I kind of go through that backstory of, you know, I was so exhausted, I couldn't get off the couch, I had no energy for anything. But if I didn't explain that part and if I, you know, you've got to be in the right emotional space to kind of go through that as well. And that's it. Like it's uh, like what you said there about it takes emotional, mental, physical energy to share that story and people aren't going to get it unless we do, but that's up to you whether to share or not and whether you have the energy to. Yeah, exactly right. Um, And I think, you know, there's still, because it's still, I'm still quite in the infancy stages of my kind of time off. I think it's been maybe two months now. And there's obviously, you know, a lot of friends and family that I haven't caught up with or told. And it is quite difficult when I have friends and family messaging me and they're kind of, oh, you know, how are you? And Sydney's in lockdown right now. So it's, you know, are you working from home? And it's like, well, I don't want to, I don't want to get into this, like on text message or, so, I mean, for me, um, and it's not something that comes naturally to me, I have really learnt to try and say, I don't want to talk about it. Or in some instances, I actually just don't respond. Um, and that might not always be, you know, the best case scenario, but it's for me, it's kind of that protective mechanism of if I'm not in an emotional space to kind of share that story, or if I, I don't want to be that level of vulnerable with that person, I don't have to. They don't have the right to know what's going on in my life. No, like I hear really strong boundaries happening there that you're acting on what try boundaries is something I'm still learning but yeah de- I'm, I'm trying yeah definitely I think it's difficult for a lot of people but particularly 
definitely, I think, being a perfectionist and also being a people pleaser, it can be really difficult to set boundaries. And I think working in, you know, in a, in a field where there's such a high volume of work, there's constant external accountability, you know, whether it's somebody else's case or the organisation that you work for, being a perfectionist and a people pleaser in that environment was a breeding burnout for me. Yeah. Yeah, because the, the system itself, like in, in terms of law, doesn't really have a lot of good boundaries it sounds like there's a lot of high expectations unrelenting standards is that right yeah absolutely and you know sometimes you would get you know I remember I think my grandma's like 93rd birthday you know I'd get emailed work at 8 30 at night that was needed back that night and so you know I'd leave you know her birthday to come home to work until it was finished and I think a lot of people that don't work in corporate law I mean everybody that works in corporate law thinks it's normal which is a problem anyone that doesn't thinks well you should just say no what I think is really difficult for people to understand and part of the problem with the legal profession is that being able to say no comes from a concept of having work set work hours so having a nine to five or a nine to six corporate law doesn't have working hours so 24 hours in a day you have 24 hours of potential working capacity and so if you have a client that you know potentially give you gives you hundreds of thousands of dollars of revenue in a year if they email you like maybe you, you or your boss or whoever else work at a certain time of night and they need it done in a really short turnaround time then it has to be done and if you want to work in corporate law you can't say no or you won't have a job you know it might first occasion they might not turn around and say you know you're fired but that's the expectation going in that's what everyone else does and yeah I just think it's it's a really difficult part of the industry um, and the inability I think starting my career that way and not actually being allowed to have boundaries made it even more difficult in all aspects of my life to learn how to set boundaries later on it didn't allow for an environment in which you could learn those those skills. It actually worsened it, yeah. Yeah, yeah it, exactly, exactly right. And then, you know, to the point that when I moved on and started working in an organisation where I set my own boundaries, I didn't have any. Oh, yeah, yes. <laughs> so as, again, like, as a people pleaser and a perfectionist, you know, if I was – you know, at work and, you know, I saw somebody else go home at their, you know, set working hours, but there was work left to be done. Even when it wasn't legal work, I stepped in and did it um, because I always wanted, you know, what was best for the organisation and I wanted really good outcomes. And if I could see somebody else, and what I see now is that was their boundaries, that was them kind of going, well, you know, I finish at this time, so I'm going home. Whereas for me, who had no boundaries and being something, wanting the best job possible and when you please everyone I went okay well I'll just pick it up and do it and but that just ended up meaning that I was doing so many different people's jobs and I just was working huge hours even though nobody asked or was expecting me to um and it all yeah I think learning it a lot of that yeah definitely stemmed from not having boundaries for, and particularly for myself, I think when we think about setting boundaries, we often think about other people. So when, you know, setting boundaries with our friends or our family or our partners, 
having boundaries with ourself is actually really important too. But the system itself, like the law profession, particularly corporate law, it in itself um, externally creates, well, um, this is me saying this, that creates the potential for burnout within the you know, corporate lawyers just with the expectations they're not having fixed hours or somewhat of fixed hours no boundaries basically Mm, absolutely and I think if if it's not like that you are the exception to the rule um you know I think there are certain in this is in kind of commercial law firms there are certain pockets where you might have better hours or you might you know, have a better work-life balance, but that's definitely the exception rather than the norm. And if you want to be successful and if you want to be able to kind of climb that corporate ladder, then you can't be like that because, you know, the odd person that does set their boundaries and they say, you know, I'm going home at six o'clock, then they're known. It gets it gets around very quickly that like they're slacking off, they're a bludger. And, you know, if you want work done and you want it done quickly, you're not going to go to that person. That And that person's not going to then kind of progress in the way that they want. So if you want a career in corporate law, those are the expectations. And you know that going in. Um, so it's one of those things where if, yeah, I don't, I almost see a way forward. Um, I think the problem is that when you are in that environment and you're working all the time, like it, you know, I would rarely, rarely go home before seven o'clock at night. Um, that would be like a really good day. When you're constantly kind of working till, you know, between 8 and 2 a.m., only time that you have for connecting with people, uh, with the lawyers around you, um, a lot of people that the only people really that will understand that, you know, because I could make, you make plans with friends, but you always know at the back of your head that you might have to cancel them at the very last minute. Sometimes it can be five minutes before you're meant to meet because that's when you've been given work. And so the only people that understand that are people that are doing it as well. You know, the only people that are willing to accept dinner at 8pm are, you know, lawyers and bankers. Um, And so what that then ends up meaning, though, is that the friendships and the relationships that you cultivate around you are people that are all in that environment. And your relative scale of what is normal gets completely skewed. And so I think... And it certainly happened to me, you know, about maybe two and a half years in is that I kind of looked externally at my friends in kind of other industries that were working nine to five or, um, you know, they could have dinner with friends during the week. And I just thought that that was so out of the realm of possibility for me because everyone I knew around me, all of my friendships around me, they were all working outrageous hours all the time. Mm. Like, like you said, it created such an insular that that was your norm. Yeah, exactly right. And I think it was until one of my best friends who I met um, at the organisation that I, that you know, the law firm that we were both working at, that he left and went to government. And he, if I, I don't know if I would have ended up being able to get out if it wasn't for him, because it was kind of his voice the whole time going, this isn't normal, Sarah. The connection with him and seeing what he did helped you to realize that that's something you can do, like almost like a permission thing that lawyers can do this, they can leave? Yeah, I think so. And it was, or at the very least, it was the 
kind of trigger point to think about, you know, what else, you know, would I do if I wasn't doing this or, you know, you could do something else. Um, And I think part of the other problem is that when you're working such huge hours, you know, if you're getting home at midnight, you don't want to, you don't have the energy or the time to turn around and start, you know, drafting cover letters and, um, you know, applying for jobs. It is so true. Like often when we get to this point where our body and mind is totally burnt out, we're working these long hours, you're pushing, pushing, pushing. And even though there's a sign that, you know, that, okay, I, I could do something else, we just don't have any energy to invest in that or time. Exactly. Yeah, exactly right. Um, and I think the problem with corporate law as well is because a lot of the work comes in very kind of last minute and it needs to be turned around very quickly is when you plan to do it on a certain day. Like if I'm like, oh, look, I'll do it on Thursday. Then on Thursday, I could get given work at eight o'clock that keeps me at work until midnight. And then, you know, I've missed the, and say, you know, the cutoff points 9am on Friday, I've missed the cutoff to apply for a job. And that kept happening to me over and over and over where I didn't have the the time or the energy to apply for a job. But yeah, it's, it's a hard, it's an incredibly difficult profession. And particularly if you're in um, a corporate kind of, I'd say like top 10 kind of big law firms, I can't obviously speak for the experience of all law firms, but what I have seen friends that I've seen at other firms, that experience is more normal than a different experience. And they, one of the things I've come to know about the career burnout syndrome areas that there is those individual factors as you've talked to today for for yourself and your experience of it but there's also the external as well of the actual career that we're working in and and not that you know we're blaming the career or anything but there's those certain cult that the culture of that career that can be in, uh, unintentionally feeding that um that decline in people's mental health and well-being uh, hey um I've, I've kept you for so long today so we've been chatting for a good hour which is awesome um there's so much richness to your story your experience and i'm really grateful for you sharing what you have so far i'm just wondering if there is anything else you know any other wisdom and you shared so much wisdom so much learning um that you've taken um, from your own experience and and using to grow as an individual. Um, And I'm just wondering if there's anything else that you'd like to share. Yeah, um, just kind of having a think. I think if someone is listening to this and they're resonating with, you know, particular points or they're just wondering generally whether or not they would benefit from having time off, I think that is indicative enough that it might be a good option for them. I think if you feel a calling to have time off, that that is probably um, you're you're already almost having like a a body bodily response to something that's going on in your life, and at the very least, maybe that is a sign to start kind of reflecting inwards and to start thinking, why am I drawn to this idea? What is it that's making me wonder if I should do this for myself because I think if we ignore warning signs like I did, your body will eventually force you to stop and don't let it get that bad. You know, if you can, don't let it get to the point where 
you physically can't get out of bed every morning and your personality has been diluted and dulled down because you don't have the energy to be who you were anymore. So I think if if people feel called to have time off, at the very least, start thinking about why you're feeling that way so it doesn't get to a point where it's much harder to come back from. Beautifully summed up there, Sarah. Thank you. Lovely. Well, I just want to thank you, Sarah, for your bravery and sharing your mental health and career story with us today. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me on. You're welcome. Thank you so much for tuning into this month's episode of Career Burnout, a different kind of gap year podcast. I've enjoyed bringing this one to you. I, as always, welcome your comments. Feedback only helps us to know what we are doing well and what we may need to do to improve things. So comment away. If you feel a different kind of gap year podcast may help someone else, please don't keep it to yourself. Share it. And if you have a career burnout story to share with me, please contact me at a different kind of gap year at outlook.com. Until the next episode, take care of you.